This morning we'll be reading from Psalm 115, and that will be our text. Psalm 115. As you're turning there, I wonder if you've seen the videos on YouTube showing various people doing things, usually with construction and large equipment, trying to get just a little bit higher or a little bit farther and getting creative using equipment for something it was never intended to do. Have you seen some of those videos? Sometimes you'll see uh, someone using a a backhoe to do something a backhoe was never intended to do. Uh, Some of the most dramatic ones, I think, are when people are using ladders of all kinds. Uh, Ladders can go wrong in a lot of different ways. Uh, Sometimes you'll see someone that can't get quite high enough on a ladder, and so they'll stack another ladder on top of that. And usually something goes badly wrong. Uh, Usually the bottom will slip out, or they'll lose their balance, and and chaos happens. Uh, We are creative people who will often take something that was not designed to be used in a certain way and use it for a completely different purpose purpose or we'll we'll try to get out of it what was never intended by God. Uh, And we see that in spiritual things too. We see that people are determined to get what they want and to pursue it by any means possible, even if it's not what the original design was ever intended to be. Psalm 115 is a call to the community of God's people to trust in their living God and to seek his glory. We need to be reminded of who exactly God is and what is important in this world to follow the original design that he has for his people and for humans and what pleases him. So let's look at Psalm 115. It says, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak eyes but do not see, they have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell, they have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. O Israel, trust in the Lord, he is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear in the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both the small and the great. May the Lord give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. 
The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he has given to the children of man. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence. But we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. Amen. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, as we look at your word this morning, we ask that your spirit would be at work. We desire for you to get the glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. We pray that you would be uh, working um, in our hearts, Lord, that you would uh, guide my words and help us, Lord, uh, to be not just hearers of this, but doers. And we thank you for the help of your spirit that does that. In Jesus' name, amen. So in this psalm, we see the writer begins with an urgent plea for God to be known for who he is, to be truly seen and recognized by the world around him. We see in verse two that it's clear that this is not currently happening among the nations of the world. It says, why should the nation say, where is their God, implying that that is happening currently. And this question that's asked in verse two is still asked today. Where is their God? The psalmist sees the people of God as having a vital role in pointing others to who he has demonstrated himself to be. In verses four through eight, he shows the emptiness of idols and gives us an alternative repeated three times, the kind of the center of this psalm, the center emphasis to trust in the Lord. And then we see in verses 12 through 15 a repeated reminder of God's coming blessing. In verses 16 through 18, a kind of book ends with the beginning and the end of the the, uh, chapter showing uh, a call to seek God's glory. If you're taking notes, there's two pursuits that distinguish the people of God from the nations around them. Two pursuits. A living trust in a living God and a holy ambition. A living trust in a living God and a holy ambition. We know from Scripture that God has created, designed humans to be worshipers. Worship is showing homage and respect and giving service to another. And instinctively, by our very design, we are designed to worship something. We seek to put our trust in something. We are always going to look to someone or something for strength and going to serve what we think is most valuable. God made our original design for worship to flow upward to him. But in sin, we replace and we substitute the worship of God for other things as demonstrated by the nations around Israel. We see this tension lived out in this passage. We see uh, the, the history of Israel. Uh, we know from other parts of scripture that starting with Abraham, God called his people, Israel, to be different from the world. He rescued them out of Egypt and he showed the weakness and the incapability of the Egyptian gods. 
He set Israel apart as a holy nation and gave them covenant laws. One of those commandments, the first one, was to not have any other gods before him. The people of God are called to be wholehearted worshipers of God. Unfortunately, the idols of the land surrounding Israel became an alluring distraction. Their attractiveness uh, pulled the people of God away from a trust in God again and again to something visible, something they could see, that they could make, they could control, that these nations around them thought uh, controlled the world and gave them the ability to worship an alternative to God. God sent judges and prophets to warn them away from their idolatry, but Israel was taken into exile because of idolatry and because of rejection of God. So the original audience hearing this psalm would have been surrounded by these other nations where worship of these gods was the status quo. These nations did not worship the God of the Bible, but things they had created and the world around them. And these persistent snares would come up again and again in the history as you read through the Old Testament. Sometimes Israel would go wholesale after one God, and you'll see that sometimes in Judges or in 1 Samuel where they're called to repent and come back from worshiping a false God. Sometimes we see in 1 Kings, 2 Kings, that they would mix and match. They would take a little bit from several different gods, or they would worship God, but in a pagan way, or they would worship a pagan God in the temple. They were, there was always this, uh, what we might call syncretism, this mixing of worship of God with the worship of idols. To the nations around God's people, the invisible nature of God was absurd. It's easy to trust in things that you can see and touch and control. And even today, we see the people of God surrounded by those around us that believe in naturalism or secularism, that the only thing that's reliable are things that you can measure and taste and touch and see and hear. The insistence on seeing to believe is not something new. Now, it's easy for us to read Psalm 115 and other psalms like this that warn of idolatry and think of idolatry like tuberculosis or polio. It's not very common for someone to come down with tuberculosis or polio today. A hundred years ago, it was epidemic. But today, through vaccines and other ways, we just don't generally encounter that often. And so it's easy to read about idolatry in a similar way and think, you're not really going to see physical idols. So is idolatry really a problem today? If you go to a Chinese buffet, or you go to Asia, and you go to India, and you see these idols and shrines that they've built, um, but here in America, we don't normally have a fall down in your living room and worship the family idol routine. So it's easy for us to think that maybe this was something the people of the Old Testament struggled with, but we New Testament believers don't, don't have a problem with that. And if so, we need to remember that even though the technology and the customs are different today, people's hearts have not changed. And we're shown again and again, the people in the Old Testament struggled with the same exact patterns and heart struggles that we are tempted to today. Another reason we shouldn't gloss over the warnings about idols is that in the New Testament, we're specifically repeatedly warned about idolatry as though something that could could be a threat to the people of God. John ends the book of 1 John by saying, little children, keep yourself from idols. 
Are you tempted to read Psalm 115 and see idolatry like polio and tuberculosis or as a real threat to your spiritual health? We overlook Old Testament warnings about idolatry to our own peril. So what, what was the draw of these idols? For one, they were substitutes that we see here, substitutes for trust in God, going against the original design. The people of God were tempted time and time again to doubt God's character, his steadfast love and faithfulness, and the result would be they would look for substitutes around them, especially that which was popular around them. And these substitutes would inevitably, like a broken ladder, at the worst possible time, let them down. So the author wants to show us through some irony in verses 4 through 8 the limitations of these idols. There's an irony here because these nations in verse 2 are saying, where is their God, expecting the invisible God to be on demand, uh, visible in a way that they expect, while at the same time, these other nations are worshiping invisible idols, visible idols that are not real. And so the author wants to show us these things that these idols just can't do. We see a few things, some clues about why these idols were so alluring. One is they were popular. All the nations around them were doing it. It was common and familiar and encouraged. Are there things that you or I pursue today because everyone is doing it? Because that's just sort of how the culture works. God's people are called to live differently. It also shows us that spiritually absurd things can be widely held as truth and form the way that the people around us see the world, even though there are eternal consequences. We see that these idols in verses 4 through 8 had human traits, but with limitations. In short, they were incapable. Um, They were something that a human could seek for comfort or control apart from God. And they collected the trust and the worship of these other people that was originally intended to go to God. All nations of the earth should worship God. So all of these things are diverting and siphoning off uh, attention from God to these these, uh, false hopes. So the author tells us in verse 8, those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. Unless God reveals his truth to us, Idolatry is the default course of all humanity. And if you follow the original design, you put your trust in God, you will be in the minority on a collision course with the world system around you. Idols are deadly, though, like a poison. If you take it, things will be terminal. They give you a misguided confidence and then let you down when you need them most. Several years ago, I heard a story of a man who wanted to have an expensive car. The problem was he didn't have the money to have an expensive car, uh, but he did have the money to buy a 3D printer. And so with this rare collectible car car that was over a million dollars to purchase, he discovered that if he bought a very large 3D printer and a lot of plastic, he could make something that looked just like a, th- uh, a rare collectible car. Uh, he proceeded to, to print it out in these different panels and glue them together 
and then create a coating on the top of it so that the car looked real. So if you would presumably take it to a car show, he had a ginormous Lego car that he could take that looked just like this collectible. But the difference was it was not real. Imagine if this man were to rely on this car, driving to and from his car show. Uh, if he were to have a crash, everything in the car was just designed for that outer shell. Nothing was designed to protect him from the impact of an F-150. Uh, it would just, it would explode and it had no structure inside of it. And that's how idols are that, that they, we think they can give us what we want, but there's no structure in them, no ability to follow through and to deliver what protects us. Uh, the author shows us that we don't want to go here. Uh, these idols are a, are a distraction, and they're deadly. So we see that they're popular, they're incapable, but fatal. Notice also how the idols were made from silver and gold. These are things that God made, and idols in our hearts today can be made starting out with good things that God has made. Uh, we can make idols from our jobs. We can make idols from having a perfect family. And we can make idols out of our bodies, as well as many other things. They start out good, but we can, with our sinfulness, twist them and use them out of healthy proportion. A few weeks ago at the counseling training that some of us went to, uh, Brad Bigney was one of the speakers. He wrote uh, a helpful book called Gospel Treason. And in it, he, he points out that one of the sure ways to find idols is to look for the chaos in our hearts. So when something goes wrong and we have strong emotion or an outburst of anger, it becomes uh, a clue and we need to pay attention because it can point to idols that are in our hearts. We can find ourselves saying, uh, I shouldn't have to repeat myself or remind you again uh, and feel that, that we don't deserve to have to do that. We shouldn't have to do that again. We can find idols when we are willing to sin or get something or when we greatly fear we're going to lose something that we've been working for for a long time. Idolatry can also manifest itself in thinking that we are our own redeemers that there's something that I need to do on my own strength to make myself right before God. Humans are not created to bear this weight, but Bigney says your heart is the compass that points to where you run when under pressure. So where is the chaos in your heart? Now the cure for this misplaced trust, fortunately, is given by the author here. It's not simply to repent of idolatry, although we should do that. It's not to merely not worship anything, to say idols are so dangerous, trusting in idols are bad, therefore I am not going to trust in anything. The cure, and the author shows us, and the rest of the psalm unpacks this, the cure is to trust in God, to return to the original design, to put our longing in him, and to be humans that are made to worship God, worshiping God. In verse 9, look how the author does not linger in idolatry, but now conf confidently shifts our attention to a reliable kind of trust, the God who made us. 
We see a threefold call here. In verse 9, O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. In verse 10, if you've missed it, O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. And in verse 11, you who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. One of the challenging things in, in preparing to talk on Psalm 115 is that it's deeply personally convicting that in the midst of telling us all to trust in God, it is also a challenge personally to trust in God. And I love how in each of these, uh, it shows that it's a universal need and it's a perennial need. This reminder needs to be given again and again to the nation of Israel who would gather and sing this psalm, to the house of Aaron who in the Old Testament times were the ones who would point people to God. Even they needed to be uh, trusting in God. And then we see in verse 11, this call to fear the Lord, those who fear the Lord, that could be a very generic call and even a foreshadowing of the way that God would open the, the gospel to the Gentiles. Um, we see that this is open, an open call to trust in the Lord. And then the author begins to move on. Uh, he says, regardless of, essentially, regardless of your lineage, we need to trust in God. And he shows the results of these things. Uh, look what he does next. He shows that God, in verse 12, has remembered us and he will bless us. Uh, and he has been our, he will be our help and our shield in each of those. When we trust, we mean uh, who we turn to for reliance and confidence and support. And just as we see in Hebrews 11 and in, throughout the pages of Scripture, different ways that God trusted, that people trusted in God, so the ways that are unique in the lives of members of this congregation, the call of the way that God trusts us is through him and through his word, but the way that it works itself out often will be unique to our situations. For a child or teenager, trust can be following the Bible's command to obey your parents in the Lord. It can look like standing alone at school where other people are being mean but not falling into that. It can be looking at what the Bible says about your body image or appearance and uh, being an example of the believers. For a college student, it's not looking just like your peers, realizing that academics are secondary to your spiritual growth and being with people who are not like you. For a young professional, trusting God can look like resisting the newfound freedom of money and continuing to spend time in God's word with his people to navigate relationships with a desire to please him. For a parent, trusting God can look like investing in our children and showing patience and love to your family on some very hard days and sometimes just not giving up. It can also look like releasing our children to God and recognizing that he is the one who saves and rescues them. For a senior adult, trusting can look like expressing gratitude to God for planting the seeds in the lives of others, even knowing that you might not see the fruit in your lifetime. One of the joys of being a member of a local church is to see the ways that each person is trusting God and the way that that works itself out. It's such a delight. Uh, earlier today, uh, a member, an older member, shared that they're going through health challenges and that their prayer right now is how can they glorify God through this limitation? 
It was just such a beautiful, unsolicited reminder of how God uses the, the examples of trust in the lives of the members around us to encourage us collectively. This is our destiny, to trust in God. Trusting God is also pushing back against those first inclinations to rely on ourselves. It's remembering who God is and knowing that he is at work in the circumstances of our life. And according to his steadfast love and faithfulness, he will work even when we can't see him. Sometimes this is an area where in my life I can be tempted to go with my first instinct to think, oh, I know what to do in this situation. If it were a complicated situation, I would need to ask God about it. But in this simple situation, it's just very clear. And, and not realize that maybe God wants to redirect even that informal impulse that I might have. Uh, what is it that he wants me to do? So that's an area for me that uh, God consistently convicts me. The call here is to trust a God who is not idle. He's not absent. He's not deaf or senseless or incapable. Those who worship the living God have the privilege of placing their trust in someone who is real, who doesn't deceive them, and who is actually involved in their lives. The trust in God is rewarded. So the difference between trusting in God and trusting in an idol is that God actually cares about your future and is actually working for your good. And a little piece of clay does not. And a silver or gold idol does not. The God substitutes that humans have created and that tempt us to turn to him away from the living God, they aren't able to do this. We, know, we don't know when exactly in Israel's history this psalm was written. At the beginning, it doesn't specifically call out when it was written. But we know when in verse 12 it says, the Lord has remembered us, they have part of the picture. They have the confidence that God will remember us but there's, there are things that they haven't yet seen, that haven't, haven't yet been uh, revealed to them. <clears throat> so the original audience, looking ahead, would only look ahead with a vague expectation of what would happen. But we, as New Testament believers, on the other side of the cross, have the fuller picture of how God demonstrated his remembrance. He remembered his people by sending Jesus to be born in a backwater village, to live in a real human body. You think the idols were all fake, but here God sent his own son to live in a real human body, to walk on this earth, to walk the same footpaths as his creation, to actually heal lame people. No idol has ever healed a lame person. To raise the dead, to restore hearing to the deaf, and to die the death that an idol worshiper deserved. No clay cutout could ever do that. So if we look at our hearts and we find as we pray and as God's Holy Spirit works that we have idols in our heart, the things that we turn to under pressure, the path out of idolatry is through the cross. God provides forgiveness. Uh, God has remembered us, and he wants us to worship him uh, wholeheartedly. So if you are a Christ follower, and you are on an idol hunt, and you find one, 
confess it to God and know that as his child, this is not your future. In 1 Thessalonians 1, we see how New Testament believers turned away from these idols. It said, they, uh, Paul, writing to the Thessalonians, said, we know that your faith is genuine uh, because you turned from idols to serve the living and true God. So we know that it's possible. Idol worshipers can be redeemed. <clears throat> so we, know, we see that God's blessings for us originate in Christ <clears throat> and are secure. The blessing of God is primarily derived from a relationship with him. And that means we can be fully blessed even if we lose our health or our friendships or our positions. But God has also remembered us here in the created world in which we live. He's given us meaningful work to do, to minister to others, and to serve, worship him, and point others to him. In James, it says, every good and perfect gift is from above. And I wonder, do you think to thank God when the visible things come into your life? Not that that's our primary emphasis, but when they do, do you remember to thank God for these ways that he has blessed you? The God who made heaven and earth is your benefactor. <clears throat> And so we see that the writer starts out this psalm with a plea for God's glory to be revealed among the watching nations. In verses 1 through 3, he shows us the steadfast love of God, his faithfulness, and his sovereign omnipotence to do whatever he pleases. And now, he, after making this call to trust in him, we see a kind of bookend reminding us of the awesome power of God and uh, seeing that God is the one who made the heavens, and the privilege he has given to his people. A living trust in a living God should result in a holy ambition. And that's what we see as this bookend, verses 1 through 3 and verses 16 through 18 as a kind of bookend. The people of God have a holy ambition. Now, God deliberately made people in his image, and he wants his people to image forth God. He could have made them look totally different, not like him, and yet in his sovereignty and wisdom, he made them look like him to bring him glory. In the Old Testament, the word for glory has the idea of weight or heaviness with it, and it would be used sometimes when a, a king would return from battle carrying the spoils and the loot of war with them. The spoils of the victory belonged to the king that won the battle. And the writer of Psalm 115 begs that in verse 1, the weight of God's greatness would go where it rightfully belonged, to God. But humans are like porch pirates. You've seen these videos of people dashing up to a porch, snatching a package intended for someone else, and running away. The illustration is not original, but I think it's a beautiful picture of what we tend to do in our own strength. We can be a glory thief. There is something that God has given intended in our life, intended to point people to others, and we dash up, snatch the glory, and dash away. Are you a glory thief? The city here attracts a lot of ambitious people. It's a popular tourist destination. We have many jobs 
available from top companies. It's a top-tier academic city, and it's the seat of government for a prosperous state. So we have a lot of ambitious people attracted to live in Austin. So we can take on easily, if we're not careful, the ambitions of the world system around us. So parent, is having obedient children for you about honoring God or making you look awesome as a parent? Employee, is your job about your glory and your next career move or about using the things God gives you to point people to him? Those of you who use social media, do your, do your social media accounts make you look like you are the star of life show and everything is awesome? Even church ministry coordinators, musicians, deacons, elders, is your work for the church to point people to God? John the Baptist, after his ministry, pointing people to God, he said, he, referring to Jesus, he must increase but I must decrease. Would you be okay if after all of your ministry, you are forgotten, but God is glorified? The Sunday school class we've been going through in stewardship is looking at how can we arrange our time, our resources, and our spending to bring God glory. We should indeed seek to do quality work. There's no excuse for doing sloppy work. We were supposed to, in Colossians, do our work as unto the Lord, even if no one is watching. But we need to do our work for the glory of God and not for ourselves. We can easily be like glory thieves, dashing in, snatching packages of glory and running off with them. So our opportunity is special, and we see it in these final verses to show glory to God. You think of all of the people who have ever lived in the world, billions of people, but only a small percentage of those people are currently alive today. And then if you look at all of the people currently alive today, only a percentage of those are following God. And that is the special privilege that the people of God have today, to image forth God, to point, uh, to show through the way that they trust the invisible truth and glory of God. Someday, if the Lord does not come back in our lifetime, we will die. And we will join the saints who are absent from the body and present with the Lord. We see in verse 18 that we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. So our lives go on, but the baton gets passed off. It gets handed on to another generation to seek God, to demonstrate trust in him, and to show his glory uh, to a watching world. Have you considered that you might be the only visible picture of Christ that your friends or your family or your co-workers or your neighbors will ever see? You can do things the no longer living followers of God can do. You can be God's means of making the invisible character of God shown in the way you treat your fellow church members. So letting God have the glory takes the pressure off us to look perfect. It's not about our character and our traits, but it's about his glory and pointing people to him. The glory of God is revealed through God's people acknowledging that they are not the hero of the story. 
uh, God is the hero of the story, and he has sent Jesus as that focal point, the one who gets the glory for himself. When you fail, God's worth is demonstrated in that you look to Christ, God's appointed means of forgiveness, and not to yourself. On the other hand, when we seek glory for ourselves, it is like a road sign pointing in the wrong direction. It does not point the nations to God or to his capable character. When we seek personal prestige for ourselves, the hidden cost is that it obscures and lessens God's glory among the watching world. The church and Christians look like people who are just in it for their own glory like everyone else. So when we seek glory for ourselves, we conceal the path to happiness in God. What are you pursuing? Are you ambitious for God's glory or for your own greatness? I love what one author said, I am called to live in relation to God so that my life produces a longing after God in other lives, not in admiration for myself. God, as we have seen, deserves the glory. It's his steadfast love and faithfulness. It's his sovereignty. It's his ability to be a help and a shield. It's his ability to give blessing and increase to us. He's the one who made the heavens and the earth, and he's the one who's worthy of our blessing and praise. The people of God have the privilege of being the ambassadors of God, but no ambassador should ever be more famous than the kingdom he represents. And Jesus is the focal point of the glory that we should be seeking. With that bookend, we see it come full circle. The people of the invisible God, speaking well of God in a world full of idols, seeking the God of trust in a way that looks totally different from the nations around them. This is a psalm about trusting a living God in a world that does not see him. It's about the pursuits of the people of God, seeking to point others to his glory. And the way that we do that today is we point people to Jesus. If people saw that you were associated with Jesus, would they be surprised? Or would it seem like the only logical thing? There was a young man who died at age 25 in another part of the world, having given up uh, fame and fortune and all kinds of opportunity. He was a Yale graduate, and he was the president of Phi Beta Kappa. And he had uh, traveled the world as a young man, and yet he felt God calling him to give up these things and to serve on the other part of the world. He contracted cerebral meningitis shortly after he went to the field, and he died before he ever got to his final destination. And on his tombstone, it said that apart from Christ, this life would make no sense. Would your life make sense apart from God? So we see that the people of God need to be reminded perennially and universally of who exactly God is and what is important in this world. We need to be called back to the original design. We see the call here in Psalm 115 to trust in the living God, to have this living trust in a living God. 
and we see that we are called to have a holy ambition, not for ourselves to point people to look at how great we are, but to point others to Jesus. So rather than living for our own glory, it's our privilege while we live on this stage, on this earth stage, to trust God in such a way that it causes our world around us to see reflected through us the glory of a living, true, and visible God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would enable us to live out this psalm by your Holy Spirit. We ask that this would be lived out in the ways that we treat spouses and parents and children and grandchildren and friends and neighbors. Lord, we ask that you would help us to live not for our own glory, but for yours. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to put our trust in you and that by your spirit, you would enable us to bring you honor and glory. Lord, we pray that as a congregation, the people of Park Hills Baptist Church, we would live not for our own glory, but we ask that you would get all the glory from our lives and that you would use us to point others to you for the sake of Jesus. Amen.